Friends, good to be here tonight. Let me pray that God would speak to us. Lord God, you are a God who speaks through your word by the power of your spirit. So we ask that as we look at this word tonight, that we would be encouraged to be faithful to you, that we would be full of grace and that we would speak with conviction, whether in a public setting or in a private setting, commending Christ with everything we say and everything we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the arrest and imprisonment of Christians will will stop the spread of the gospel. The law courts will not stop the spread of the gospel. Lies by other people will not stop the spread of the gospel. For God is always working behind the scenes to build his church for the glory of his name. Take hold of that truth. God is always working behind the scenes to build his church for the glory of his name. He said, I will build my church. Hell cannot stop me. Kostas Matris is a a Greek Christian. Uh, He's been the leader of what is called the Hellenic Ministries. And uh, in 1984, he and some YWAM teams were working in Greece, sharing the gospel. They did some campaigns on the streets and probably drama and music and, and so on. And a young guy came to them and asked for a Bible. So they handed out a New Testament to a 14-year-old. He kept coming back, as often people do at these special events in the city, but remember, this is a Greek Orthodox country. And they don't like evangelicals. A lot of YWAM teams were from America and other parts of the world. If you don't know YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And uh, they work all around the world in taking the gospel to others. And so they were working there, but when the mother of this young guy found out She was a fanatical atheist, and she used what is an anti-proselytism law. To proselytize means to convince someone to change from one religion to another. And Greece had this old law, hardly ever used, saying if you convince someone to change from one religion to another, you can be imprisoned. In the land of democracy, you could be imprisoned for simply convincing someone to change their faith and their religion. And so, uh, using that old law, they were sentenced... Uh, Kostas Makris and two key leaders who are known right around the world to three and a half years imprisonment. They appealed immediately and they were then freed pending the appeal. But what Satan intended for harm, God used for good. You see, they're free for, for a year. They travel, Kostas Makris traveled to America and Europe, other places of the world, telling everyone this story that we were arrested for simply sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Uh, YWAM guys right across America, it got to the point there there were letters of complaint to the Greek government from right around the world as a result of this this arrest. I remember hearing about it, we were praying for it in Australia, that God would set these people free back in the 1990s. So much so that even the President of the United States wrote. They wrote letters to the European Union. Greece, you're part of the European Union, what are you doing imprisoning people for simply handing out a Bible to someone? And uh, the message of the gospel spread even more powerfully around the world, and pressure was put upon the Greek government, and on appeal, the international media attention was massive. Everyone was watching. Greece was before the world, and the sentences were overturned. Not only did that take place in the sovereign will of God, but Costas was then given a 17-metre steel-hulled sailboat to use in ministry to the islands, to the Greek islands. And that continues to happen. You can go on a summer mission to Greece, join a team, 
and travel around the islands distributing Bibles to people. All that happened because of the work of their imprisonment and that court case at that stage. I want to remind you, God is always at work to build his church. It was the same in the first century. Remember in Acts chapter 9, 15 to 16, Jesus said to Ananias uh, about Paul. It said, the Lord said to Ananias, go, go and meet this Paul. Used to be Saul of Tarsus, now converted. He is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right at the beginning, Paul, formerly Saul, Paul now will go to the nations. In Acts 23, verse 11, that Matt looked at last week, following opposition, following riots in the city, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must now also testify in Rome. I want to tell you, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter what is happening in the lives of our missionaries, no matter what is happening in the world, persecution, COVID, war, God is working behind the scenes to build his church for the glory of his name. So don't be discouraged, don't be dismayed, whether you're in a university class or school classroom, in a workplace, God is always at work through his people to build his church for the glory of his name. Be ready, though, to testify with grace and conviction. In uh, Acts 23, Paul is in Jerusalem. He had reason to be discouraged. He was under pressure and under persecution. And we saw last week that in chapter 23, he spoke to the Sanhedrin. Who are they? The ruling Jewish council. There are 70 members of that council, both Pharisees and Sadducees. He gave his testimony. This is what I was like. This is how I came to know Christ. This is how God has been at work. He pointed people to Jesus. Paul is always pointing people to Jesus. That's a good example for us. He affirmed his belief in the resurrection of the dead. He's very clever, Paul, in his preaching. He doesn't simply proclaim the gospel, but he has enemies. The Sanhedrin, they're the ruling council. He knows Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead on the final day, but he also knows the Sadducees don't believe in any resurrection. The Sadducees just believe that you, you have no immortal spirit. You die and that's it. So he talks about the resurrection, so he divides his enemies, and the enemies hate each other. They argue amongst themselves. You have to be very clever in evangelism and mission in the public sphere. What to say, what not to say. The dispute became so violent, though, that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Here is God again, now saving Paul. He sends the soldiers in going, well, this guy's a Roman citizen. We can't let these crazy Jewish people kill him because he's one of our people. He's a citizen. And that's when God said to him, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When God says he's going to Rome, he's going to Rome, isn't he? God says, I've got a plan for you, Paul. I'm going to take you, I'm going to send you to Rome and testify about me. Nothing can stop God's plan. But there are 40 men, we read in the next section, who try to kill Paul. They think, well, let's, let's arrange to meet him when they bring him out and we'll uh, get rid of him. And then God, the Bible tells us in Acts 23, exposes the plot to kill Paul to Paul's sister's son, I guess his nephew, in verse 16. So he hears about these guys have a plan, he goes in uh, to tell Paul, and Paul says, let's talk to the centurion, you can make a movie out of this, right? Hey guys, this is blood, they're going to kill him. No, no, we're going to let him kill him. Can you go tell the soldiers? I tell the soldiers. 
So they decide to move Paul to Caesarea on the coast. He's in Jerusalem. They move him to the coast, 120 kilometers away in the middle of the night for his protection. God is always at work, remember, to build his church and to guide his people. And then there are letters written to Felix, the governor of Judea, because Felix is going to be the guy who's going to adjudicate here. But who's Felix? You need to understand who Felix is. He was the governor of Judea from AD 52 to 59. He'd been ruling about six years when Paul came in. And he had been a slave, then became a freed man under Claudius. He was corrupt. Listen to me. Get this. This guy is corrupt, he's a cheat, and he is hated by the Jews. You'll get why I tell you this now in a moment. We know that he was ruthless in quelling Jewish uprisings. The historian Tacitus writes about him, Felix held the power of a tyrant with the disposition of a slave. His wife was a teenager whom he stole from another king. You'll meet her, you, you heard about her a little while ago. And the corruption of his rule became so great that the emperor Nero, Nero, the most morally corrupt guy, recalled him. He said, you're doing a terrible job. You're a cheat. No one likes you. You make a mess of everything. Nero recalls him. He's even worse than Nero, right? He would have been executed if his brother who was in Rome at that time had not pleaded on his behalf. And this is the man before whom Paul has to appear. And the letter sent to him in 23 verse 25 to 30 says this. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and I rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. And the rest of chapter 23, they just describe his travel, how they got him over to Caesarea and so on. So what's firstly the case against Paul? We're told in chapter 24 that five days later, there's a court case, the high priest and the Sanhedrin get their case together, they travel to Caesarea with a lawyer named Tertullus to bring their charge against Paul. Who's Tertullus? We don't know. He's got a Roman name, right? looks like they have found their best speaker, their best orator, because lawyers were great public speakers who can present their case well. You know what lawyers are like. Sorry, I mean, they're really good. They always tell the truth. Never fabricate anything. Never play the game to win a court case. Tertullus was hired by the Jews to present and win the case. And you know what he does? Remember what I told you about Felix? Listen to what he says about Felix. Tertullus presented his case. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about great reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. That's bull, right? <laughs> he's just flattering, he's just sucking up to this guy. Oh, mate, my friend, you know, I don't want to spend too much time with you. You've been such a good person. No, they all hate him. The charge, we found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Jew or the Nazarene sects and even tried to desecrate the temple 
So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. So what are the charges? Number one, he's a troublemaker. The literal translation of the troublemaker would be he's a pest. He's a pestilent fellow. He's a plague of mammoth proportions. He's an infectious disease. This guy is terrible. If you set him free, he will spread turmoil, disorder, and rebellion throughout the empire. He causes trouble everywhere he goes. He's an agitator for revolt. You must take this guy down. He's a troublemaker. It's very clever of Tertullus, you see. He knows the Romans are not interested in religious matters, whether you believe in the resurrection or not. He doesn't care. But if there's some guy who's going to cause trouble in the empire, they're worried about that. Secondly, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He doesn't mention that he's a follower of Jesus Christ, the one who healed the sick or drove out demons or raised the dead or forgives our sins. He doesn't mention that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us. He rose again from the dead. No, no, no. He's part of a sect. It's overtones of heresy. It's a Nazarene sect. You know, they come from up there near Nazareth. We don't quite know. They're a little bit unusual. They're not mainline. You don't know what they get up to in their secret meetings, these people in the Nazarene sect. Put question marks about him. He's a ringleader. He's not an ordinary guy. He's the guy who runs the show. He promotes dangerous heresy that has grown up within Judaism. And he's tried to desecrate the temple. Well, that's a lie, because Paul did nothing of the sort, did he? Tertullus is a clever lawyer and a clever liar. He knows that Roman law gave a special status to the Jewish temple and even prescribed the death penalty for those who violate it. So he brings up the temple, hoping that Paul would be judged for that. And everyone else answered. The other Jews joined in the accusation. Yes, yes, yes. They're true, they're true. He's a troublemaker, Nazarene sect. He desecrated the temple. You've got to get rid of him. Oh, great governor that we love and honor and admire, for you've done such good things for us. I'll be careful with my language. I only mentioned Paul once. The defense. So Paul gets up. Listen to how he doesn't flatter Felix. When the governor motioned to him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Notice, clear. Not mucking around, not trying to win him over in that sense. He knows he's been around for a number of years. Paul knows, I think, that the governor understands. We find out later that he, he's well acquainted with the way. That's what they were calling Christianity at this stage, with the way. We find out that he, he knows about him. So Paul said, yeah, happy to bring my defense. It's a nonsense charge. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Firstly, he says, I'm not a troublemaker. Makes sense. Be called a troublemaker? No, I'm not, he says. He said, you can verify that more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. I wasn't arguing with anyone at the temple. I wasn't stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charge they are now making against me. So there's no evidence. Throw it out. Secondly, I'm a follower of the way. Notice how he changes it. He doesn't say the Nazarene sect. They're calling it a sect. Or some Nazarenes. No, I'm a follower of the way. I follow Jesus. I follow the Old Testament, he says. And it's come out of Judaism. I'm a follower of the way. If you want to call us a sect, you can do that. But see, the Pharisees and Sadducees are sects within Judaism as well, in that sense. We all don't agree on everything, but you know, we're a legitimate group. 
And he stresses his similarity between his beliefs and those of the men who are accusing him. I love this. And this is important, I think, in some of your evangelism and witness. He says, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves had, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul said, yeah, we believe the same things. Well, has it been a little bit uh, deceptive there, Paul? No, well, he agrees with the Old Testament. He just sees it fulfilled differently to what they do. He said, we can say a similar thing to Jewish people today. If you're evangelizing a Jewish person, and uh, many of them are atheists, by the way. I mean, if you've got a religious Jewish person, you can say you are more Jewish than they are. We be- I can say, I believe in the Old Testament Scriptures. I believe in the law and the Torah. I believe in the prophets. Yes, I do, but I see them fulfilled in Jesus. doesn't mean I don't believe in them. I believe in them, but I've gone a step further. I understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of their law. So I can say, I'm more Jewish than you. Do you know why I never told you earlier, why Costas Macris and the YWAM leaders, uh, why their court, was thrown, court case was thrown out? My understanding was that they showed that what they taught was no different to the Greek Orthodox Church. They didn't change religion. They're both Christian faiths and able to show that they, they shared the Bible that the Greek Orthodox Church uses. And I guess they may have, I'm not sure, they may have said we follow the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. So we haven't caused anyone to change religion. It's not like they became Christians to Muslims or Christians to Buddhists. Now, if you press those leaders, as if you press me, I would say, well, there are some differences between Greek Orthodox and Baptists in your understanding of the Bible, but there's a lot of core things that are the same. Paul says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He says, I'm blameless. I try to do the right thing. And then he goes on and says, I did not desecrate the temple. He said, rather, what did I do when I went to Jerusalem? After the absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I love that. You think I went to destroy them? I brought money for the poor. I've been collecting it everywhere because there are needy people. If you want to understand my heart, what I'm up to, I'm not up to causing rebellions. I'm bringing money to help poor people. Now, even today, right, if Christians, a lot of non-Christians don't like us, but if when we raise money for the poor, give food to the hungry... We're being decent, right? He said, listen, I've come to bring money. And I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. We know especially he made himself ceremonially clean, Acts 21, 24 to 26. But he said, "Uh, Felix, you know who the problem is? Let me tell you, verse 9 and 21. There are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So I've done nothing wrong. So those guys keep complaining. Go and find those guys from Asia. Let them come in. They're not here. And he talks about the resurrection of the dead and divides the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. Defense is concluded, he waits for the verdict. Now, you would think if God is at work in all things for the glory of his name, the building up his church, he's got to set him free, right? Oh, well, good argument, Paul. He doesn't. 
Paul fail, or Felix fails to release Paul despite his innocence. Felix has to decide, what do I do? Do I make the Jews happy? Do I make Paul happy? What do I do? I'll just put him in prison. He said, while he was well acquainted with the way, adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So God was still at work. Paul is in prison, but he's free to move around and do things. What is even more astounding, Paul has proclaimed the gospel in the public setting. Now he proclaims it personal setting. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus. Who would have picked that one, right? Paul, come over. Tell me some more. Tell me about the way. Tell me about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. So Paul is having, probably with a little bit of food and maybe some drinks thrown in, having a conversation with the governor. One moment he's in prison, the next moment he's having a conversation with the governor. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave, when I find it convenient I'll send for you. Come in, tell me these spiritual things, Oop, no, 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 too hard, sin, I'm quite a sinner, don't talk to me about righteousness and self-control, I have none of that, judgment to come. Uh, thank you Paul, you can go now, right? I love it. God sometimes gives you wonderful opportunities to share the gospel in a private setting with very significant leaders. It could be a university lecturer, by the way. It could be a politician. It could be the boss of your, your football club. It could be your swimming coach. I remember the day, uh, it's not in my notes, but I'll throw it in, when I went to visit one of Caitlin's swimming coaches. High-profile swimming coach, uh, coached Olympians, it had a, a, a bit of a stroke, and so I found out, so I visited him in hospital. And I turned up with my Bible and, a, and, a, and some, some other material for him, and I said, oh, can I come in? And I started to talk to him how he was, and we talked a little bit about God and stuff, and I said, can I pray for you? And uh, I freaked him out, because he said, oh, yeah, all right. He thought I was going to pray for him when I went home. But right there and then, right, when he's in the hospital, he's not going anywhere. Well, okay, let me pray for you now. <laughs> Jesus, please, I pray for so-and-so, I won't mention his name, I pray, God, that you would work in his heart, that you would heal his body, that he would come to know your love and, and so on. Sometimes you have opportunities to do that. Don't be force yourself on others, but just do it. I had a conversation with a guy in my office once. Uh, he was a non-Christian married to a Christian woman, and uh, we were doing Christianity Explained together. He'd come week after week, we'd sit in my office, make him a cup of coffee, and we, we went through the core gospel message. And he loved meeting, and he loved talking about God's love, God's forgiveness, but he wasn't repenting. It's a bit like Felix. Yeah, come and tell me some more, but no, not too much. Tell me some more, not too much. And then one day, we, I said to him, uh, God put it upon my heart to, to really challenge him. I said, mate, you've been hearing this message for, for quite a while now. And you haven't repented, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus. I said, if you continue to reject Jesus and live life your own way, you'll face God's judgments, and the ultimate judgment is hell. And he went, well, I don't like that. I said, you don't have to like it, my friend. But the Jesus who died for you and rose again is going to be your judge on the final day. And you can hear this message. You can come every week. We have coffee together and talk. But unless you repent of your sins, you will find yourself under the judgment of God. So he never came to see me again. 
Felix sends Paul away, then brings him in, sends him away, brings him in. But I ask you the question tonight, whether you're on live stream or watching here, are you ready for judgment? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you ready? If your life was taken out now, are you ready to face him? Well, sometimes I've had the privilege of preaching at events where prime ministers are present or M- local MPs are present. The head of the police force is present. Well, years ago, well, one of your young women died and uh, uh, she used to be in the police force. And, and when you have that situation, you have like the heads of the police are here and they, they run everything, they control everything and, uh, and I just preach the gospel. Leading authorities in this state were sitting in this building. I get to share the gospel with them, praying for an opportunity for them to think about their own life, their own destiny. At another time, I was at a, at a funeral at Warrenora, and um, there walks in a former Prime Minister of Australia, long-term serving Prime Minister. I said, praise God. He needs the gospel as much as everyone else. I knew he was a God-fearer. Whether he was a follower of Jesus, I'm not quite sure. So afterwards, as I walk out, he comes up and says, thank you very much. They always say that. It doesn't matter what you say, right? It's a funeral. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. As you walk past, thank you. And I tried to engage in a conversation with him, but I didn't get very far. But he knew from what he'd heard, because one of his friends had passed away, who loved Jesus and trusted in Jesus, that he too would meet God one day at Judgment Day. It doesn't matter how famous you are, uh, how important you are, you to be right with God. But Felix wasn't ready. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. What's going on in this guy's head? Oh, Paul, go away. No, no, you're talking about judgment. I'll bring him in another time. He might give me some money and I can set him free. No, he comes in again, tells him about Jesus again. Still, still no money. Okay, off you go. Call Paul back in a third time, a fourth time. Maybe this time he'll give me some money. Because he used to take a lot of bribes. That's part of his cor- corrupt nature. It says, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years in prison, being cared for by your people. You think, God, where are you? Well, the truth is, sometimes God is better served in prison. There was a, a pastor in uh, was it Bulgaria in 1985, who was, he's a communist Bulgaria, right? The government kicked him out of his church and put another pastor in. Uh, governments in communist countries can do that. They kick out the pastors chosen by the church and put in their man because their man is a communist and their man is not going to teach the true gospel. And so, but the church wouldn't put up with this, so this guy, uh, he kept preaching, they then arrested him and threw him into prison after a trial, which is a mockery of justice, in prison for eight months. And during his prison time, what does a good pastor evangelist do? Whinge and cry and say, why am I here? Wait a minute, no. He said, I just told prisoners and jailers about the Lord Jesus. They asked me many questions and I answered their questions. I had more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God is always at work to build his church for the glory of his name, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, God is at work. He said, God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. He says, the pain of our shattered plans is for the purpose of scattered grace. The pain of our shattered plans is for the purpose of scattered grace. God's grace goes everywhere, into the prison, and so on. 
God is always working to build his church for the glory of his name. Let me conclude with another court case. When I first read this many years ago, and I've used this story a few times, it just moved me in the faith and the courage. You have a photograph of the man, Pastor Mehdi Debaj. He was from Iran. He was arrested in 1984 and detained in the Surrey prison uh, until January 1994. Paul was in prison for two years, waiting a settlement or a judgment. Ten years. Two years in solitary confinement. In December 1993, he was tried by the Islamic Revolutionary Tribunal of Sari, given 20 days to appeal against the sentence. He was charged with apostasy, converting from Islam to Christianity, some 45 years earlier. He denied it. He said, I had no religion originally, and I became a Christian. He was sentenced to death, but due to complaints and uh, pressure from international uh, groups, he was released on January the 16th, 1994. Sentenced to death, pressure on the government, released. Six months later, he was found dead in suspicious circumstances. Preach the gospel, 10 years waiting for your sentence, you're going to die, pressure comes, we'll set him free so we look good in terms of the world community, someone takes him out. But God is always at work to build his church for the glory of his name. This is a part of what he wrote in his defense, and I conclude with this tonight. Jesus Christ says, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Imagine this to the Iranian court system. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Among the prophets of God, only Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he is our living intercessor forever. He is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I've committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord and to enter his kingdom sooner, the place where the elect of God enter to everlasting life, but the wicked to eternal damnation. Then he says, May the shadow of God's kindness and his hand of blessing and healing be upon you and remain forever. Amen. With respect, your Christian prisoner, Mehdi Debash. Grace, conviction, courage in the midst of turmoil, difficulty and persecution. May we be just like that.